glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. How many just realize good works are about the glory of God? We do not do good works to save our own soul, but we do good works to glorify God. When we who say we belong to God do evil, it misrepresents God. Our good works glorify Him. Number 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God and your grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called. He's going to explain. He's just given a bunch of instruction, a tremendous amount of instruction on conduct of the Christian, how we are to conduct ourselves in our culture and with our civil authorities and with our human authorities, if you would, which we've dealt with in a previous series of messages. But it's very practical. He's dealing with abstaining from fleshly lust and having a proper disposition and action toward authority but remembering that we're servants of God, not servants of men, servants of God. We do it for the Lord. And then he goes on to say, for even hereunto were ye called. Everything I've just told you is part of your calling, okay? Uh, Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were, I've underlined that in my Bible, as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Let me explain to you what the Lord has used in my own thought process to lead me to this text of Scripture uh, this morning, and it's it's a concept I've been pondering. We were over in Butte. Uh, one of the, the brethren that was there serving, he's an assistant pastor. He brought a good devotion uh, dealing with what spiritual meat is, and he just made a reference in there, just a quick reference, and it, the Lord used it to catch my attention. And he just was talking about how the Lord shepherds his sheep and um, and how that in America, he said his brother has some sheep, and we raise sheep differently they do uh, here than they do in other parts of the world. In other parts of the world, they still 
tend to their sheep by having shepherds. They don't really fence them. I'm not saying they never put them in a fold for safety at night, but they don't really fence them. But the direction and the guidelines and the governance of the sheep is really all about the shepherd. Here, we fence them and put them in there and kind of feed them in the morning. We kind of raise them like cattle. Not that that's wrong or sinful, but how many understand there's a difference in turning a flock of sheep inside of a fence and throwing some feed or making sure they got some pasture or some hay or water and shepherding them? There's a vast difference. These sheep over here are depending on some boundaries to keep them where they belong until you do them what you want, whereas the boundary of the sheep that is following a shepherd is determined by the shepherd. Now, I'll just say this. When God saved you, you were going astray, and I was going astray. All we like sheep, Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, Isaiah 53, verse 6, that's what Peter's referencing here. And when the Lord saved you, he did not simply put you inside of a fence and say, have a good time. He returned you to your shepherd so that the Lord Jesus Christ lives today to direct your every step. He is the governance of your life. He alone, he alive, his word is the fence on your life. Amen? You'll feed where he wants you to feed, but the fact of the matter is we are like sheep. We do need a shepherd. And what I want to see here is what the the apostle Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, inspiring the words that come from him, show us that there is, he kind of starts, what Peter does, he starts on what man can see and he works down to the root of that. He starts with the good works. We've been preaching to you on salt and light. Salt is what man can experience from our lives. We are to be savory salt and we're the light of the world. And so uh, the light of the world is our good works. But what happens is this, is fruit has to have a root. And what Peter starts here with is this is the fruit that should be coming from your life. These kind of relationships with people where you are not promoting evil, but you are doing good. You are standing with and for God in a culture and a world that's against God. And when you do, you're going to be accused of being evildoers. When you don't run with them to rioting, they're going to accuse you of being strange and and, and odd and uh, uh, judgmental. I mean, and there's nothing under the sun. They're going to accuse you of being the lawbreakers when you're standing with the Lord and doing what is right. When you're using your liberty to serve Christ, they're going to accuse you of all kinds of things. But you just keep on doing what's right and respond properly to them. I'll say this. We are living in a time. The Bible says, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Friend, this morning, let me just say, as, wa- as in water face answereth to face, so the heart of man to man. You and I better guard our hearts from cold-heartedness right now. There is a tremendous amount of iniquity surrounding us. In fact, that becomes the talking point. It concerns me that it's easier to get focused on the iniquity because it's so loud and in your face. But in the midst of all that iniquity, God does not want us to be cold-hearted. I believe Christians in this country and around the world are looking to a more difficult time, not an easier one. Now, I could be wrong, and I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think so. The world is poised to point its finger at Christians as being the scourge of humanity. I mean, you can see what I'm talking about. We're, we're, we're headed that way. The question is, what are we going to do? Are we cold-hearted? Are we going to change our positions of loyalty to the Lord and obeying Him as we should? I believe the Lord is speaking time and again to this church to get our focus squarely on Him and living to please Him alone. 
May I say this this morning, whether it is you or whether it is myself, if we are focused on living our lives and some other influence than Jesus Christ is directing who we are, we're out of God's will. If you and I are saved this morning, we are to be under the governance and guidance of Jesus Christ because it's the lost world that ignores him. When we got saved, we were returned to him. So I began to say Peter really starts with the fruit of the Christian life. And then he reminds them, this fruit is your calling. How many of you realize this morning you and I are called to bear fruit? That it's the will of God that we bear fruit. So that if we're not bearing fruit, our Heavenly Father is not pleased. We say, what is fruit? It is my response of faith to God's Word. It is my decisions that are based upon faith in His Word. Meaning this, it's the work that results from the faith. That's fruit. The best and simplest way I know to tell you what fruit is, whether it is, you say, well, I thought the fruit of the Spirit was love and joy and peace. It is, but all those things are manifest in our lives, are they not? And so then Peter starts with the fruit in verses 11, and you can back up in the chapter. I just wanted to give a context of how practical his instruction to the Christians were. It is almost as in our day that any instruction about practical conduct, any biblical uh, exhortation, that would actually lead Christians to act outwardly upon their inward faith. It's almost like there's a group of people today that cry foul the moment that you say, because you're a Christian, you should do this. There's a a crowd with their little whistle out ready, and I'm not here to preach against them this morning. That's not my point. But I want you to be aware there's going to be naysayers that say, no, anything outside of just preaching Jesus, meaning all you need to preach is that men are sinners and they need to be saved, and Jesus is the one who saved them. That's it. That's in. Don't preach about how Christians should live. That's all peripheral. That's all secondary. I'll say this. How many of you agree? Fruit is secondary to root. You cannot have a fruit without a a healthy root. But how many of you agree that a healthy root does produce fruit? Peter begins with the fruit, saying this is the fruit of being a Christian. And then what he does, this is very instructive this morning, but what he does is explain the process whereby the mental and heart process that takes place. How does being saved by grace through faith end up making me a different husband, a different dad, a different employee, a different citizen? How does that happen? He spells it all out right here. He says, this is your responsibility. That's the first point of our outline. He begins in, in, this, in this chapter, in our text, that we deal with dealing with Christian responsibility. Not This is your responsibility to become a Christian, But because you're a Christian, because you're a believer, and I mean Christian in the biblical sense. Someone says, I'm a Christian. I've always been a Christian. I was born into a Catholic home, a Lutheran home. Uh, uh, I was born into a, 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 a Baptist home. Look, many people think of Christian as you're not a Muslim, you're not a Hindu, you're a Christian. I don't mean it that way. I don't care. Being a Protestant doesn't mean you're a Christian. Being a Baptist doesn't mean you're a Christian. You must be born again. And that is when you personally believe God's word enough that you turn personally to faith, by faith to Jesus Christ to save you from your sins because you realize without him you'll perish and go to a place called hell. That's what I'm talking about this morning. So a Christian is someone who truly and sincerely from their heart believes on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as God's word declares him. But if that's what you are, are we to live like everybody else? Or are we to be a peculiar people zealous of good works? And Peter is dealing with that. Because you believe in Christ, this is how you're supposed to live. Meaning, Jesus Christ does have a mind on how we live. And 1 Corinthians 2 says, and we have the mind of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who saved me, does have a mind and a will as to the kind of 
individual, the kind of character he wants me to be, the kind of thoughts he wants me to have, the kind of attitude he wants me to have toward you, the kind of attitude he wants me to have toward my wife, the kind of attitude he wants me to have toward sin. If you read much of Jesus' preaching, he hated sin. He loved and would forgive repentant sinners, but he hated sin because it's sin that ruins people. Mark chapter 7, the Lord Jesus articulates 13 evil things that proceed from the heart of man. And he deals very clearly with the fact that if you want to clean up a man's conduct, you have to change his heart. That's Mark chapter 7. And so here we find people whose hearts had been changed. And so Peter says the responsibility of the Christian is to live in a practical, perceivable way that is too in obedience to God. Is that not what he says here? He mentions time and again that we are to be servants. Look at verse 15. He says in, uh, in, in verse 14, talking about submitting to human authorities. In verse 15, For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. I'll give one just very quick, just one quick note here. The only time we're not to do this is when those who are in authority are calling upon us to disobey God in order to obey them. We've seen some of that this last year. For the first time in my life, we've seen where there are human authorities who are stepping into the role of God, at which point we do not say, you tell me what to do, so you will still tell me what to do but not when it's in conflict with what God tells me to do. Amen? I mean, let me just try to give you some illustrations. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we come to the point soon, and I'll say this and move on, where human authority again is saying, you guys got to stop having church in person. you just got to quit that. But that's not what the Bible says. Amen? Amen. So if we get there, we need to have our hearts and minds made up. We're not, a, we're not, a, we're not rebels against our government. We are obedient to our God. You with me? All right, so let's move on. So the responsibility is, verse 15, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free. You're free to serve God. Not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as what? Servants of God. Verse 17, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. All that set up to verse 18. We'll focus on verses 18 through 25 simply to make the point of this message. Verse 18, Servants... Be subject to your masters with all fear. Now, I've got a question. Is God governing conduct here or attitude? The answer is all of the above. He says, be subject. Uh, verse 18, that means you give in to what they want you to do. They're the master. They're determining how the work is done. Don't go to work and be hard to get along with, constantly telling your boss how you want the work done. You keep the order right in the workplace. They're in charge of the project. You do what they tell you. Be subject to them with all what? What's he say? Here's the attitude. All fear. Meaning, not only doing it, but you keep a right attitude. They're, they're the authority. Keep a right attitude toward them. Not only to the good and gentle. You have a good and gentle authority. Hey, that's easy to respect them and obey them. And he says this, but also to the forward. Meaning, your submission to them is not based on their personal character, but on a principle. And what does this have to do with being a Christian? How you treat your employer. What in the world does it have to do with being a Christian? Everything. God says what you're going to do by your good conduct as a Christian. We're talking about Christian responsibility. This counsel, this instruction in verse 18, would we say it's very practical? Is it personal? And is it perceivable? If you and I have a Christianity that's not practical, personal, and perceivable, we're missing something. Meaning if how I conduct myself my daily life doesn't point to the fact that I am something different than the rest of the world. 
Something's missing. God says, you're, you're in a world, you're strangers and pilgrims. How many of you would say it is the pattern in a workplace? We've had a number of people in here that are either in the, currently in the workforce or you've retired from the workforce. It is normal in the workforce for those that are employed to simply come in and do what is told them by their employer. Friend, I've been in the workforce a lot of years. That happens when the consequences for not are greater than the blessings for disobeying. The natural bent of man. I remember my first full-time job out of high school. Um, you know what happens when the boss isn't there? Nah, 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 nah. If I were him, I would do it this way. He ought to do it this way. And he ought to do it this way. And he ought to do it. The natural bent of man is to say, if I were in authority, everything would go better. But because I'm not and he is, everything is bad. That's what God's dealing with. That's what you used to be. But you're not a rebel anymore. You're there to help. You're there to work. You be the one that doesn't give the boss a hard time. Wasn't that practical? And if you read 1 Peter chapter 3, he starts dealing with marriage and how husbands ought to treat their wives and how wives ought to treat their husbands. Real practical stuff. This is Christian responsibility. Because I'm a Christian, I conduct myself differently than I would have before I was a Christian. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'll say it again. There are those in the name of liberty that say, no, 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 you're free. He said, yes, you're free, but don't use your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness. You're free to do what's right. So he deals with the responsibility or the fruit of Christianity. He goes on to verse 19. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, meaning you're going to be treated bad because you're doing what's right, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? Now, I don't know many people that can do that. Can I just preach here for just a minute? I don't know many people that can take a criticism when they're wrong, let alone when they're right. Most people, especially when we got pride all puffed up in our hearts, even when we're wrong, we go into self-defense mode. Yeah, well, it's because of the way I was brought up when I was a kid. You know, my dad was just overbearing and hard-nosed old school. I mean, he, he actually gave me spankings. And I've turned out to be the, the kind of ornery employee that I am because of my upbringing. I just can't help it. You with me? That's not even taking criticism for my faults. God says, what glory is it if you take it patiently? Meaning, your boss calls you over and says, look, you've been late for the third morning in a row. You've got to straighten this out. And you go, you know what, you're right. I am so sorry. Is that glory or is that just appropriate? I mean, you agreed to be there at a certain time and you're not because you're not preparing as you should. You get reproved for that. God says there's no glory in that. But you're the guy that's on time. You're the guy that works harder than everybody else. And because you are a conviction to your boss, he is on your case nonstop. You ever been there? He is not on you because you're the bad employee. He's on your case because you're the good one. Because your timeliness and your sobriety and your work ethic is a reproof to his slothfulness and his service of lust and the fact that he can't do his job properly because he's on a hangover from the weekend. You are a constant light and salt in his wounds. And he's going to get you. Why do you think Potiphar's wife came after Joseph? Because he was bad or because he was good? She show, he showed her how wicked she was. And she said, I'm going to get you. And by the way, she lost and he won. You know how? He took it patiently. Took it patiently. When he was reviled for doing what's right, he did right anyway. When, look, when other Christians are, are, are accusing you, and you say, other Christians, I hate to say it, but sometimes carnal believers get upset with spiritual ones. But you know what spiritual believers do then? Bear it. 
and serve God. You know what Peter's saying? You're going to have people that don't appreciate your loyalty to God be loyal to God anyway. You're going to have employers that do not appreciate your loyalty to God. In 1 Peter 3, wife, you're going to have a husband that is not obedient to the word and he's not going to appreciate your love for God. What does he tell the wife to do? Love God and obey him anyway. You know what Peter's saying? Keep your focus clear. As a Christian, your focus is on Christ. You were serving sin and self, but when Christ saved you, now you're serving God. And that results in Christian responsibility. That our faith in Christ should result in godly conduct. In verse 20, For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Let's just be very clear. God says, I'm not really looking for you to take reproof patiently for error. That's just fundamental wisdom. But when you take patiently being falsely accused for doing what's right, the Bible, God says, that's what I'm looking for. Now, do we see that exemplified in anybody in the Bible? Our Lord and Savior. He was accused of being a lawbreaker on a regular basis. When he did not treat the Sabbath like the religious crowd told him to, when he used the Sabbath for its divinely appointed purpose, they said, Sabbath breaker! And he was constantly being accused of being a Sabbath breaker. And what did he do? He revealed what was wrong with them, but you know what? He kept doing the will of God. Even while he was being reviled, even when he was being falsely accused, he was accused of having a devil. And he revealed the truth, but he continued to do the will of God. He did not cave to the pressures of those around him and the afflictions put on him. Why? Because his heart, and he said, I do always those things that please him. And so Peter begins with the responsibility of the Christian. It is, it is a practical responsibility, a personal responsibility, and a perceivable one. Our good works, the way we treat those in authority, those, the way we treat those under authority. God deals with all of it. The way we conduct ourselves personally, Paul would deal with in Ephesians chapter 4, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. That's the will of God for the Christian, that no foul language should blurt out of our mouth. So no Christian should ever say, whoop, I let one slip. That means your real heart came out. What's truly in your heart, the corruption and the filth and the anger at God that's really there, bloop, slipped out. It's in your heart, but it came out of the mouth. The Christian has a responsibility to guard the tongue. Now, why? Let me ask you something. Is all of this just for the goal of being better than people? That's never the goal. It's loyalty to Christ. Now, let's look. He's going to get into the redemption of the Christian. We've seen the responsibility of the Christian. Our responsibility is directly tied to the fact that we're redeemed. Here's what he says. Verse 20, he says, For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called. That's why I use the word responsibility first. This life of obedience to God is the calling of every born-again person. How many believe that it would be okay for your preacher today to say, You know what? Today's my last sermon. And I don't plan on ever preaching another Bible message in my life. Done. How many think that's okay? And there may be a season where God says, I don't want to need you to pastor that church anymore. I'm not talking about resigning a pastor and maybe doing something else. I'm talking about, I say, I will never preach. I'll never open the Bible. I'll never try to win another soul to Christ. I'm done. Now, why would that not be okay? And you're right, it wouldn't be okay. Disobedient to his call. 
we're not careful, we narrow the word calling down to people who are vocationally called to the ministry. You know, the kings are called to be missionaries in Mexico. And Pastor, you're called to be a preacher. Every Christian is called to be holy. Every Christian is called to do what is right in the sight of God in our daily, personal, practical lives. Why? He said, hereunto were ye called, and he's going to explain, verse 21, because. Why is the calling to practically, personally, perceivably live a life of obedience to God? That's what being salt and light is. A practical, personal, perceivable life of obedience to God. That's what it is. Why? Here's why. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his Steps. Now, he did not come merely to be an example, but for those of us who believe in him, he's the pattern we conform to. That's what the word example means. It's also translated in sample in other places in Scripture, and it means a pattern to which to conform. The Bible warns us in Romans 12, verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. May I say this? You'll never conform to Christ until you purpose to quit conforming to the world. We're going to conform to one of the two patterns. The world puts a pattern in front of us that is based upon lust and pride. Jesus Christ put a pattern in front of us that's based on one thing. What was the one thing that motivated his entire life? His leaving heaven and coming to earth. His living a sinless life of obedience to God the Father while on earth. His laying his life down as a sacrifice for us before he left this earth. His raising from the dead and ascending back and giving the Holy Spirit to us to dwell in us and guide us. What was the one motivating factor of our, our heart, our Savior's heart? But that, true, to do the will of the Father, but that is based on what? God is love. The world is so perverted in what it thinks love is. The world thinks this is love. Because the world's version of love is, I love me. Therefore, anything that goes along with what I want, I love. God's version of love is found in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not about getting, it's about giving. And if we're saved by Jesus Christ this morning, let me say this, our responsibility is based upon our redemption. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn there with me if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. We read these verses often because we need to hear them often. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. The Bible says this, For the love of Christ... Let me back up just a little bit. Verse 13. For whether we be beside ourselves... You ever seen a Christian that's just beside themselves? Also, there's times I get beside myself. I believe sometimes people accused him of being crazy. Agrippa said, Paul, much learning hath made thee mad. Meaning Paul couldn't talk without speaking of Christ. See, I don't know about these fanatics. I mean, they can't even buy gas without talking about the Lord Jesus. I think that's just over the top. They're beside themselves. You get beside yourself over things. All of us do. Well, Stephen Cindy asked me this morning, do you grow in a beard for hunting season? Man, I couldn't help but tell about the elk I saw this week. I mean, I was beside myself for at least a minute or two. Why? Because I get excited about that kind of thing. Something wrong with us. If I can get excited about elk but I never get beside myself over Jesus Christ. If I come up here and the best I can do to you is say, well, folks, i just give you the best thing I got. This Bible says this. You do with it what you want. Look, being saved ought to mean something. He died for me. That song, I never hear that song without it stirring my soul. The man who wrote that, he knew what it meant to be saved by the cross of Jesus Christ. John Newton's former slave trader, the author of Amazing Grace, 
You know what happened? The cross of Jesus Christ got a hold of him. May I say this this morning? The cross of Christ has either done its work in you or it hasn't. And if you're still living for yourself somewhere the cross of Christ, you may have received the benefit of the cross, but you maybe are not living dead to self as Christ would have us to. You know what the cross does? It kills you. I am crucified with Christ. If I'm still trying to live a life that is about me, I need to revisit the cross or visit it for the first time. Because you know what sin is? Me pursuing my own way. Make no mistake. We have justified... I heard a man preach a great message the other night on the spirit of Antichrist. And he went back to the book of Daniel. And he talked about the Antichrist. And the, you, know what, you know what characterizes the Antichrist? The Bible says he does his own will. His own will. Jacob, in cursing, describing the cursedness of one of his sons, he said, you're self-willed. Self-willed. You know what the spirit of the age is? The spirit of Antichrist is? Self-will. I'll do what I want. That's not Christianity, friends. Why should I submit to a, 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 a froward master? Because my chief master said to. And he died for me. And I live for him. Because he died for me, I live for him. Paul says, verse 4, 13, For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober. So when I get serious... It is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Meaning the love I see in what he did for me reproduces a love in me for him and others. The love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all. That they which live, so those who received the life he laid down, they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them. And rose again. We read of men like Hudson Taylor or Adoniram Judson or uh, men like this who were skilled men, intelligent men, who laid down a, a profession or a life to go and do the will of God. And we say, man, that's now that is noble Christianity. May I say that's what every Christian is supposed to do. I didn't say every Christian is supposed to go to the foreign field, but every Christian is supposed to live for Christ. Why? Because that's whereunto we're called. It is the calling of every saved person in this room to live a life of obedience to God. That's what 1 Peter 2 is saying. Hereunto were ye called. Why? Let's look again if you would. Uh, it says in verse 21, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that pattern to which to conform, that ye should follow His steps. You know what he's saying? Christ showed you how to live a life for God. Now that he saved you, follow him, obey him, follow his pattern. Verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You know what happened? So when he did right and he suffered for it, instead of retaliating and taking vengeance, he looked to God knowing, God, you know what I've done is right, and I'll trust you to make the right judgment. I'm going to tell you something. One of the hardest things in the world is to do right and know that it's perceived that you've done wrong. That's hard. All you can do then is look to the Lord and say, Lord, you know that I'm being accused of doing wrong, but I trust you to judge righteously. And so then he says in verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Why did he do this? That we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. You know what's amazing about this? That is almost verbatim what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 6. There's some that would like to put the apostles at odds or variance with one another. No, no. 
Same spirit, same message. He said, Christ died so that you can die to sin and live unto righteousness. Without the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you're a slave to sin. But through his work on the cross, your sins having been fully punished and the life that you do not have because of your sins, he gives to you. So through his death, you die to sin. And through his life, you live for righteousness. Question this morning. Would your life this morning be characterized as being a servant to sin or a servant to righteousness? Because when the cross has had its effect on my heart, the practical effect of my life is I serve righteousness not sinfulness. Sin is when I go my own way. Righteousness is when I go God's way. This, he says the Christian responsibility, practical, personal, perceivable obedience to God before men. Why? Because of the redemption of Christ. Because of the love of Christ that he manifests on the cross. That because of his death my sins are paid for. Because of his resurrection I have his life. The Bible says, By whose stripes ye were healed. So he's connecting Here's your calling because of what Christ did for you in dying for you and saving you. This is how you ought to live in response to his redemption work. So he deals with the responsibility of the Christian, the redemption of the Christian, and the relationship that the Christian has with Christ. Look at verse 25. For ye were... This is interesting to me. Do you realize the apostles never deal with salvation as a process but an event? He doesn't say, you know... You were doing this, but now you're in a process. No, he says you have a past life and you have a present life. Again, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is, not trying to be, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So Peter starts so practical. Uh, obey your masters, whether they are whether they are froward or not. Obey the principle of submitting to human authority. And if you're reviled for doing what's right, do right anyway. When you're mocked and falsely accused, do right anyway. That's your responsibility. Why? Because he redeemed you. He died for you. He showed you the example by laying down his life. Now you belong to him. Follow his steps. Conform to his image. And he concludes with, because here's now. You were a sheep going astray. He says, everything I'm saying to you, the new life of obedience and righteousness uh, with the old life behind because of Christ's redemptive work for you because this is what you were, verse 25. You were a sheep going astray. Now again, let me remind you of what Isaiah 53 verse 6 says. All we like sheep have gone astray. One may say, how do I know if I'm astray? We have turned everyone to his own way. Can I get real practical? When the Holy Spirit of God reveals through this book His way that, for our lives to be lived. When He reveals His way for our lives to be lived. Let me just go back. This is such an easy illustration to use, but we could give a number of illustrations. Ephesians, again, 4.29, I believe it says, let, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. So we know that the mind of our Savior is that no corrupt or defiling language should proceed from our mouth. So that deals with cursing people, God's name in vain, telling foul and filthy jokes that stir lascivious attitudes of heart. I mean, you can go down, down a long line. Somebody will approach that verse and say, okay, I see what God says. He wants no junk, no corruption coming from my tongue. Colossians 4 says it this way, let your speech be always with grace, Seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer every man. God doesn't want any rotten communication come out of our mouth. How many of us, that's clear this morning. Now the person that goes his own way says, well, what do you do when you stub your toe or you bang your thumb? 
That's a person that's already decided, I want to obey my impulse, use God's name in vain, and curse like every other lost sinner in the world, but I want to claim that I'm a Christian. I mean, everybody curses now and again. No, everybody doesn't. People who are ruled by the Spirit of God do not. People that are ruled by the Spirit of God don't use filthy language. Amen. You only do that when you're minding your flesh. That's what you were, but that's not what you are. One says, well, that's what I am, but I'm a Christian. You may be forgiven, but you're not living as a Christian should. Amen? God says, this is what you were. He says, Let, be not deceived. Uh, know you not that uh, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor uh, abusers of themselves with mankind, nor effeminate, so on and so forth. We know the mind of Christ about this kind of conduct. And what God is saying is because Christ died for you, you are now dead to those former things. They're not to have rule over you. You're not to live an impulsive life. You're to live a life of obedience to God. And here's what it means to go our own way. I began to give the illustration. The person that comes to that text of Scripture in Ephesians that's so clear about the kind of language we're supposed to speak and immediately begin to say, well, you know, but it's just hard. And we begin to excuse using the kind of language we want to use. That's called going your own way. And God says that's the way you live before the cross of Christ. But now that you realize what Christ did for you on the cross, now you don't live unto yourself. You don't live under your angry impulses. You don't, look, man, you don't live under your passionate lust and let your eyes go wherever they want. You live unto the Word of God. Man reads Matthew 5. We dealt with this last Sunday night, verses 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already within her heart. Man says, well, the preacher, obviously, that was written in a different time than we live in. No man can live like that. Every man's going to look every now and then. Not if you're led of the Spirit of God. And not if the cross of Christ has dealt with your old nature. God can give victory. Amen? That's why he died, to give you victory. What happens is we go our own way, but what Peter is saying is that's what you used to do. He said your former relationship is you ignored the voice of the shepherd. Your former relationship with God was you didn't follow the shepherd's commandment. You didn't follow his will for your life. You followed your own and you went astray. By the way, I don't know where I'm at today. It's because you took a turn doing your own thing at some point in time. When we go our own way, we get lost. Yes, I didn't say you lose your salvation. I said you get lost, but there's if you're not saved today, you're lost. You're going your own way. But if you're saved this morning, God's reminding us you have a responsibility because of the redemption and because of your relationship. You were a sheep going astray, but are now returned. You know what another word for that is? Repentance. When we come to the realization, my way is always the wrong way. I don't know how that landed. Let me try that again. My way... Is always the wrong way. His way is always the right way. You say, well, I don't normally want to do things different than he does. You better visit your Bible again. <laughs> I'm talking about our flesh. May I remind you, your flesh never wants what the Spirit of God wants. We'll try that one again. Your flesh never wants what the Spirit of God wants. What I'm preaching right now is landing like a lead balloon. So I'm going to park right here for just a minute. The Bible says the flesh warreth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that you cannot do the things that you would. You and I do not naturally ever want to do what's right. We only want to do what's right by the new nature put in us by the Holy Spirit of God. You know, that's what Peter's saying, though. 
you had an old nature that went your own way. But now you're returned unto, look, what does he say is our relationship? To the shepherd and bishop of your souls. That's one of my most favorite phrases in the Bible. A shepherd leads. A shepherd feeds. A shepherd protects. A bishop, it's another way of saying it, but he oversees. How many have read in the Bible that God appoints men to be to watch over your soul? I mean, it's what a pastor does. He's watching for your spiritual well-being. How are you doing? What direction are you taking? Where are your decisions going to lead you? The Bible says that's what we pastors do. We watch for your souls. By the way, God called pastor. That's what God puts in your heart. I want to see people's lives fruitful, not destroyed. But we get that from whom? The chief shepherd. Isn't it wonderful to know that you have someone ready and willing and capable of leading your life and leading you down the right paths? And not only leading you, but feeding you with the knowledge, the wisdom, and the understanding you need, protecting you from the, from the wolf, the lion that walks about seeking whom he may devour. You know where your safest place is as a sheep? Near your shepherd. And that's Jesus Christ. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He's not only the shepherd of my soul, he's the bishop. Bishop means he's the overseer, meaning he is the manager of my soul. Now, this is why some of this stuff goes over like a lead balloon sometimes. Because we have in our nature this thing called stubbornness and pride. It's in mine anyway, and it's in yours. To where, if we were to describe ourselves this morning as one of God's creatures, which animal would we choose? Pastor, I'm like an eagle. I don't let my circumstances get me down. Well, you can do that if you live by faith, Isaiah 40, 31. Pastor, I'm like a lion. Nothing scares me. God says we're like sheep. That without a shepherd and without a bishop will be destroyed. But he is the shepherd and the bishop of our soul. What is that? Shepherd and bishop means he is the authority, owner, overseer, and manager of my soul. Now, if a person says, I don't know that I like that. I don't know that I care for that. That's what it means to be a Christian. He is the one leading, directing, meaning his will determines what my life will be. He determines where I go, what I do. Bishop has to do with caring for my state, how I'm doing, uh, the overseer, and it's capitalized both of them. You know, I believe this, and you hear a lot of preaching along these lines. Because of our pragmatic culture, there's many today that say, I want someone to save me from the consequences of my sin. So I want someone to save me from hell. So I want a Savior, but I surely don't want a shepherd. But he's all the same. The Savior is the shepherd, and he is the bishop. You know, what makes, you know what's comforting about this to me? And if you're, By the way, if you're a sheep this morning, this is an extremely comforting text to you. To say, I, have some, I know what I'll do if I lead my own life. I'll wreck it. I'm very comforted to know someone cares about me more than myself, willing to lead me, protect me, guide me, and get me safely to heaven. That's why you have assurance of salvation, because it's the shepherd's job to get the sheep where they belong, not the sheep's job. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. I and my father are one. No man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. He says, John 10, 27 through 30. This morning, he, Peter reminds us, here's your responsibility. Live godly lives as strangers and pilgrims. We don't belong in this world. We don't live like the world. Why? Because he redeemed us through his own death on the cross, leaving us as our Savior and Shepherd an example to follow. 
if I'm doing something other than living a life of obedience and conformity to Christ, then I'm outside of God's foreordained will for me as a saved person. That's where the word foreordained is. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. For whom He did uh, predestinate, he, uh, for them He did foreknow, He also did predestinate what? To be saved or to be conformed? To be conformed to the image of His Son. This morning, ask yourself this question as we close. What is the pattern for the way I'm living my life? The unbelieving world or the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I conforming to a pattern that says I have my rights and I'm going to pursue my rights? Or am I saying I'm bound to do what's right and even if I suffer for it, I'm going to do what pleases my Savior? Which pattern am I following today? That of an unbelieving world or that of the one who died for me and saved me?